listening to Sunday Sermons from Warren Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about us, visit warrencommunitychurch.org. Let's pray together, church. Lord, until that day, that glorious day, that we're gathered together around your throne there with every nation, every tongue, every tribe. Until that day, Lord, may we continually sing your praise and may your praise be continually upon our lips. We thank you for your presence, for the joy of knowing you in a full and free pardon of our sin. And we ask, Lord, that you take um, our time together today and use it for your glory in every way that is possible through our singing, uh, through the proclamation of your word, through our fellowship, through our mission together as a church, and Lord, through every aspect of our lives that um, brings uh, us into a relationship with you. So God bless your people today as we seek to honor you, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, welcome to church, church. Let's look at globalism. What is globalism? Um, why do we think that it's necessary for us to, uh, to even talk about such a subject? In your um, notes there today on the back of your outline, you should have a picture there or some diagrams of the book of Daniel. Three chapters particularly, Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 7, and part of 8, and then Daniel chapter 9. Well, I'll be showing that in just a little bit and walk you through that because there is a picture of what in time globalism is going to look like from the vision that God gave Nebuchadnezzar that Daniel or the dream that God gave Nebuchadnezzar, and Daniel interpreted that dream uh, in chapter 2. Then over in chapter 7 and part of chapter 8, God gives Daniel a vision, and it is the same vision of globalism. It's just from a, from a godly perspective instead of from a secular, ungodly perspective. And then Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 20 and following, gives us the whole outline of the, what is going to transpire from the time that we see that the decree goes out of, to regather there in Jerusalem in 445 B.C. until Jesus comes and the end of time, the great white throne judgment, eternity, heaven, or hell. And I'm going to walk you through some of that because Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 and following is the, is the globalism that we long for. Globalism in itself is not bad. When Jesus controls everything in the world, that's good globalism, amen? But what we are facing today is evil and corrupt even though it is a part of God's plan in bringing the world unto him, it is uh, evil and corrupt. And we, the, the, the players, the Antichrist, all of the things that are going on there, 
Uh, God uses those things to bring this world to him. Now, there's a treacherous storm that's brewing in our world today. And it's a storm called the waters of globalism. What in the world is all of that? Well, let's just talk about it for a minute. I looked at a, read a book here recently, or read part of this book, where a gentleman by the name is called, the book is called The Ages of Globalization by Jeffrey D. Sachs. And this is how he explains how the world has been steadily, slowly but steadily, growing toward globalism from its very foundations, from its very time in which uh, man came upon this earth. He lists some seven stages, and let's, I put them there for you. I'm not going to just read all of them because I've got them printed out there for you to see, but let's just look at the pattern that he sees. The Paleolithic Age, he says, that's when small groups were engaging in long-distance migrations, and that's when the population of this world was small and people began to move around. That's all that he's saying there. The Neolithic Age, humans became more adept at cultivating crops and began trade with other places. As they, as they moved around, they found places that they enjoyed living, they, they began to uh, invest their lives in that area, began to learn to plant crops, all the things that were going on, learning how to barter and to trade, and so on. Then he called the equestrian age, where uh, horses and, were tamed and domesticated, and other animals as well. Then the classical age, where it was involved the rise and competition of, of large empires and their marching armies, and we're going to look at some of that in that diagram I've told you about. Then the ocean age, uh, the ocean-going allowed trans-oceanic um, uh, trade and, and naval warfare to colonize the whole world. People began to see that, you know, they saw something floating on the water and they tried how, how that would work and they made boats and began to, to explore and go places. And all this was was making the big world even smaller, step by step. And then... We see the, and that was probably around 1500 to 1800. And then in the age of somewhere around 1800 uh, to 2000 is what was known as the Industrial Age. And it was characterized by accelerated science and technology that impacted the whole world. I mean, just what? 20 years ago, we didn't carry computers like this around in our pocket. We still had those little things on our side that every once in a while you'd feel something and it was buzzing. The thing was called a beeper, and we thought we were something when we had one of those. Only doctors had those things. Now everybody had one. Now look, we're just 20 years later, and golly, we can, we can just do anything out of a little bitty phone. Just look at how things have advanced, and the world has become smaller. And then what we call the digital age that I just mentioned from 2000 to present, which was uh, globalized economics and politics more directly and urgently than ever before. I mean, this is a world of connectedness and interconnectedness. Globalization is exactly what it sounds like. Let me give you a definition of, of, that Jeffrey Sachs gives us. He says, the global spread of finance 
trade, technology, and resources of all sorts, movements of all kinds, information, and people. It's the entire world bound up in an interconnected system. The world has been getting smaller with each passing era, and its interconnectedness greater and its inhabitants more vulnerable to a one-world government. Given the right conditions, it is all in keeping with the predictions of Scripture. What is this whole thing about globalism and how does it affect what the Bible says? And why does the Bible warn us against an evil global, globalization, but it also encourages us about a great and wonderful day when Jesus comes and establishes his kingdom here on earth. Well, the first thing I want you to see is a biblical perspective of globalization. Look with me there at that in Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 14. Notice what it says. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. When's that going to happen? The millennial reign of Christ. Then look with me in, in Psalm chapter 72 and verse 19. And blessed be his glorious name forever, and let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. When's that going to happen? During the millennial reign of Christ, when Christ is absolutely in control of all of the earth. Then look in, uh, with me in Revelation chapter 11 and verse 15. Notice what it says. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven. Now, folks, let me just pause right here for a minute. When you get to heaven, you probably, of course, you're going to have a perfect body by then as well. And we, none of us, you know, I'm, the older I get, the harder it is for me to hear certain things. My wife says I have selective hearing, that I can hear what I want to hear, but when she speaks sometimes, I don't know, I guess we've been together so long, I just kind of tune her out maybe, I don't know, but uh, I'm not going to confess to that for sure. But when we get to heaven... It's going to be a loud time. The Bible says here, what does it say? That, and there were loud voices in heaven. What were they saying? What were they singing? The kingdoms of this world, globalism, have become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Globalism but under the authority of God. All the kingdoms of this earth, all the nations of this earth, every ethnos, every, every, every language, every tribe, every tongue will be saved out of this world. And we will be there with him. And as he establishes his millennial kingdom here on earth, it says that every Oh, that there will be a loud voice in heaven proclaiming. So that's the biblical perspective. What, what, there are three things I want us to see from this biblical perspective. The first is the first globalization in the Bible. In Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 4, 
we see the first globalization in the Bible. Now, was this a good globalization, or was it a bad one? Well, I'll let you be the judge of that when you see what happens to it. Let's look in Genesis chapter 11, um, verses 1 through 4. Now the whole earth, how much of the earth? The whole earth. Can we say that another way? The whole globe. Okay? Had one language and one speech. Well, wouldn't that be good to be able to travel anywhere and, and not have to learn another language, Brother Ken? Well, it depends on how that's used. Notice verse 2. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. Then they said to one another, Uh-oh, here we go. Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said in verse 4, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. And that was a self-proclaimed prophecy right there. It hadn't happened, but it was coming. Why? Because here we know the story of the Tower of Babel and Nimrod, who um, took an arrow and shot into the heavens and said to God, Look at me, Nimrod! And all the people... We're following him, and it was a, a world, a whole world, the whole known world at that time following him. And he had set himself up to be worshiped, and God uh, does not have and put up with other gods. And so, what does God do? Let's look in verses six through nine. We'll begin in verse five. But the Lord came down. You see, Nimrod and his bunch hadn't considered that. They were so concerned about making a name for themselves and taking over and, and having a one language and one tongue and, and one everything so that everywhere that they went was all controlled in one place. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language, and this is what they begin to do. Now, nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the earth, and they ceased building the city. What, what, what was their fear back in verse 4? That they would be where? Scattered over the face of the earth, well, their self-proclaimed prophecy comes true here. Because when you, when you lift your fist into the face of God and you declare yourself to be great and mighty and you want to control everything instead of bowing to the control of God, then uh, you better believe uh, you're putting yourself in a very dangerous place. 
And so the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel, which means confusion. You know, we get our word when we say something derogatory about someone like, that guy's a babbling idiot. Well, that's where this word comes from. He's confused. Therefore, it's a name, it's called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all of the earth. Now, was this first act of globalism, was it a good thing or a bad thing? It was a bad thing. Because why? They were not following God's plan. So we see the first globalization in the Bible. I want you to put that chart up right now, guys back there, if you can do that for me. And I think we gave you a, a printout of that uh, in your notes. I believe Miss Shelby put that in there for you. And I want to show you the follow-up of what is going to take place here in God's economy. All the way from the glo first globalization where man be began to lift himself up to be God and to, and to be in control of everything, we see here that uh, God's plan is a little different. Now you have on the bottom of that handout there is Daniel chapter 7 and part of chapter 8. That is Daniel's vision. In the middle of that page there, you see uh, this statue. This is the statue that we see uh, that Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and this was the statue that was there. Now, we don't have time to go through all of that, all the, those issues and things, but it came down to this. Daniel interpreted the dream for him because none of his magicians and soothsayers and all that could do it. But Daniel did it. And this is what Daniel said to him. Notice in that statue there, uh, in that middle section there, you see a head of gold. That's the nation of Babylon. And if you read in chapter 2 and Daniel's uh, interpretation of that dream, you will see that that is absolutely what Daniel, how Daniel interprets the dream. In fact, what we have here is not only his interpretation, but it's clearly what God's Word says about it. Babylon was the first great nation to come. Assyria came uh, before Babylon, but they only captured a certain part of the world. They didn't capture it all. But Babylon, under the leadership of Nebuchadnezzar, wanted to be able to control the entire world. And so Babylon was at one time uh, maybe not in control of everything, but his attempt was to be so, just like with Nimrod. Then there was another kingdom that would come, and it was the, the silver that we see there, the breastplate of silver. And we know that from Daniel's interpretation that it's talking about the, the Medo-Persian. Now, there were, there were two, uh, two uh, world leaders, two countries, the Medes, and the Persians. Now that is the area, the Persia is the area of what we know of today as Iran and Iraq, the Medes are the area of Turkey and Jordan and all those areas and up in there. So these two were warring, but yet they came together 
And they destroyed Babylon. And they came in and took over. And they destroyed Nebuchadnezzar's army and his control over the world and so on. And so we know this to be correct because as we look back in history, we can see that this is the, the Daniel's vision here and his interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream is absolutely accurate historically because we can look back and see it happen. But Daniel is looking to the future. And then the third there we see is the, uh, the brass around the waist. And we know that to be Greece. We know that Alexander the Great conquered as much as we know, as much as he knew, the entire world by the, by the time he was in his early 30s. And it's my understanding from all that I've read that because he had nowhere else to conquer that he knew of, that he uh, was enraged and ended up in a drunken stupor and died at a very young, early age. But one thing that God did in using uh, uh, Greece to do so in Alexander the Great, what did he do? He spread the Greek culture over the whole world, where the Greek language would be what was called the lingua franca of the people, that is, the common language. And what did our New Testament uh, Bible come to us written in originally the book it was in the language of Greek so God uses each one of these and we know that this is at, that uh, Daniel's interpretation of this vision or this dream is accurate because history tells us and then Greece is conquered by Rome and we know that to be historically accurate so so far Daniel's batting a thousand his interpretation, hundreds of years before this was to happen, for many of these, absolutely accurate. But if you look down in, at the bottom of the page there, you see Daniel's dream, or his vision that God gives him. And he sees Babylon as the lion, and you see him as the strong lion with the wings, and being able to conquer and be strong. Then you see his uh, version of the Medes and the Persians, he sees two because you had two countries, two major countries that were working together, the Medes and the Persians. He sees the, the bear, and he, he sees uh, with the bear there, he also in, in chapter 8, he sees them as the ram. The ram has two horns. And then you look over to the side of that two-horned ram is Greece, the he-goat, with one horn. The two horns representing the two countries, the one horn, uh, Greece with all of his power, and Alexander the Great destroys the two kingdoms of the Medes and the Persians. With the bear up there that you see, uh, as Daniel saw this uh, as the Medes and the Persians, one arm is lifted up. That means that one of these, uh, the Medes and the Persians, one of them will become stronger than the other, and it was the Persians, and so basically it was the Persians that absorbed the Medes, and they became powerful. Then we see over in that next section where the he-goat is down at the bottom, you see up at the top, Daniel sees a leopard in chapter 7, and he's got four wings. Well, what happened to, um, to, Daniel, uh, to um, Alexander the Great's kingdom when he died? He had four generals, and those four generals then divided up Alexander the Great's kingdom Kingdom, and they were able, then they each one headed up certain areas of those kingdoms. And then you see um, over 
in between the he-goat and, um, and the leopard there, you see the one with the horns and one greater horn, come, one smaller horn coming out of it. Those four kingdoms, one will come out of it that would be a great leader, and that's exactly what happens. And then we see the Antichrist there um, as the last figure that he sees, the one who would come represented by uh, what we know uh, would come from Antiochus Epiphanes, who would come and would, alter, would offer a sow on the altar there in God's temple, which would be a partial fulfillment of the uh, abomination of desolation, but then he, he was just a prefigure of the Antichrist that would come and take over the whole world. But go back up to the next, to the middle one there where you see Rome. You see Rome is divided into two kingdoms. You had the eastern division and the western division. And from that Roman empire, you had a kingdom of ten kings. And out of that, there's going to come a rise of a revived uh, rise of the Roman Empire. And that's what we're seeing today. We went through all of that to get to the ten toes. We went through all of that to say that the globalism that we're seeing today, look at all these world leaders coming together. And our world is afraid. Our world is in fear. Our Ukrainian brothers and sisters over there are dying right now because there, there is a, an idiot over there in Russia who wants to take over the whole world. And don't believe that he just wants to. He's like that, that farmer who started buying up farms. And he said, well, how many farms do you want to buy? He says, I only want to buy that which touches what I own. Do you follow that? Got it. Well, that's exactly what this guy's going to do. And I, I wish I had time this morning to go in and explain to you Ezekiel chapter 38, where Russia is Rosh, and where Russia is and China, there in Ezekiel chapter... Who, let me ask you, who has bragged in the past 10 years that they can, can actually put on the field a 200 million man army? The nation of China. And we see that from Ezekiel chapter 37, 38, and 39, that there will be a conglomerate and a coalition of Russia and China that will come from the north, and they will come in to destroy God's people there in the nation of Israel and to wipe that nation off the earth, and then God is going to intervene. So all of this, folks, listen to me, all of this is biblical prophecy. Every bit of it. So don't think that um, this is just, you know, some guy over there that's just trying to show his power. No, he wants to take over the world, and he will do it. And so does President Chi. His goal is to destroy the American economy, to destroy freedom, to destroy this whole idea of personal freedom and everything that this nation was built on. Do you know, and by, let me run a little rabbit here, if you'll run with me. America is not mentioned in prophecy. I wonder why. Well, I'll tell you why I think, 
And this is just personally my opinion because the Bible does not say. I think our great country is going to come under some type of globalism that will take away your freedom and this country's freedom. And we will not have the major authority that we have had in over 250 years as a nation to protect those freedoms. Because we have wicked leadership. We have weak leadership. And we have a government right now and this administration that is more concerned about Russia and, and them being able to sell their oil to Europe and do you know that every day we buy Russian oil so that we literally as a country are killing the Ukrainians? When we have all the reserve and all that we need here in the United States of America, but this administration and this government that we're under right now shut all that down, opened our borders to destroy the integrity of this nation and what it means to be a free American and it is all for one purpose and that is globalism. And one of these days I'm going to tell you how I feel about that. <laughs> but I got to go so I can get done here. But the top part of that is the Daniel chapter 9 verses 24 through 27. Let me, let me carry you through some of that just a little bit. This is the 70 weeks of Daniel that Daniel sees for prophecy, for history. He sees the end times. And he sees where we are today. And he talks about seven weeks and three score and two weeks. That is a total of 69 weeks. And you see that period one on that design. That's 69 weeks. Now these, the scripture says there when it says seven weeks or 62 weeks, it literally, this is what the Hebrew says. It says seven sevens. Seven sevens or 62 sevens. Now these are not weeks like we think of, of days. These are weeks of years. Seven sevens. So you have 69 sevens. And then the scripture tells us in Daniel chapter 9 that there is a gap there. And the verses are there that show and describe for us and then it picks up and says there's one final week or one final seven. What is that gap in Daniel chapter 9? It's where we are today, folks. We're in the church age. When did these seven, when did these 69 sevens begin? If you look at the chart, um, you'll see that the scripture tells us, it says, from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build of Jerusalem. When, we know exactly when that was. It's found in Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. It was the 20th year of Artaxerxes, 
It was the month Nisan, and the first day, March the 14th, 445 B.C. We know that historically. And then he says, after these 69 weeks, Messiah will be cut off. When was Christ rejected? If you'll look in, in Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 40, you will see what we know as the triumphal entry. You will also see in Zechariah 9, 9, where it pro, uh, prophesies Jesus come riding in, in upon a donkey and he would be rejected. When did that happen? We know the precise date. April the 6th, 32 A.D., Messiah the prince was cut off. Israel rejected the Messiah that day. It was a final culmination because what did Jesus say? That if they did not sing Hosanna and praise unto him, that the rocks would cry out. But they rejected Jesus Christ. The same ones who were crying Hosanna to God in the highest were the same ones screaming out just days later, crucify him, crucify him. So how do we know that this is accurate? Well, get your math hats on here. I want to give you some historical math. I didn't put it on there because just by looking at it, sometimes it's just like, wow, what, you know, I don't know all this. Write down, get your little spot right there and write these numbers down. 69 times 7, 7 sevens, right? 69 times 7, times 360. Why 360? Because that was the Jewish calendar. The Jewish calendar was 360 days. Every so often they would add a month, the month Nisan. And that is figured into this, and it is... Uh, proclaimed as well from there we see in uh, the 20th year of Artaxerxes the month of Nisan it was that extra month that was added and so often they would do that where we we have what we call a leap year right and I'm going to show you that too so 69 times 7 times 360 comes up to be 173,880 days if you see these as weeks of years and that's what they are so on March the 14th, 445 B.C., you add 173,880 days to that. That equals April the 6th, 32 A.D., the day that Messiah the Prince came into Jerusalem to offer himself to the, as the, to the kingdom, and they rejected him. Now you say, well, I don't know all about that. What about we've got different years? Well, just... Hold on. Let me give you some more proof. Find you a little spot there where you can write. Flip it over on the back. Let me give you this. Now, you've got to put your thinking caps on here. B.C. 445 to A.D. 32 equals 476 years B.C., remember you've got to add one there when you go from B.C. to A.D. Multiply 476 times 365, which is our calendar, and you come up with 7, 173,740 days. You say, 
See there, Brother Ken, it's not right. It doesn't match the other one. Just hold on. What did we forget to add in? The leap years. So add in the leap years. That's 116 days. And then you add from March the 1st to April the 6th, which is 24 days. And what do you come up with? 173,880 days. So it figures out to be the same whether you use the Jewish calendar or our calendar. And this is historically accurate. This is not some people manipulating numbers. This is exactly Daniel's vision here, and we can prove it historically. We can look back and say, wow, hundreds of years before this happened, Daniel sees it. And when Messiah's cut off, that meant that Israel had rejected the king and rejected the kingdom. And then what do we see? The church age. And we're in that time right now. Well, what is going to end the church age? The rapture of the church. Because the Bible tells us in Daniel chapter 9 and in Revelation chapter 6 and verse 2 that there will be a prince that will come. What? Who is this prince? He is that beast that you see over on the bottom of your chart there. He is a part of the ten united um, confederated nations of the toes that are made out of iron and clay. But you see there at the feet of, of the iron and clay, you see this thing is kind of a scribble. It's supposed to be a rock. That rock, who is the rock of ages? Jesus. Jesus is going to come and destroy this confederated nations of evil and globalization. He will come and destroy it, ultimately. But who is this prince that shall come? If you look in Daniel, it will talk about how that he will wreak havoc for 42 months. That's three and a half years. And then you will see that it talks about 1,260 days, three and a half years. Seven weeks, Revelation chapter 11, verses 2 and 3. 1,260 days, three and a half years. 42 months, three and a half years. Combined as a seven-year tribulation period in which this prince that shall come who will try for one final globalization move to take over the world and destroy the people of God. And then at the end of that week, what will end it? What will end? And that's the last week that Daniel talks about. So you got, 60, you got seven weeks, 62 weeks, You've got a span of time, and then you have a final week. That final week is seven years. You say, I wondered where all that came from, seven years. It comes right out of the Scripture, right out of the book of Daniel, the prophecy of Daniel. And then the 1260 days, right out of the prophecy. 
42 months right out of the prophecy. And during that time, you will see literally, you think what's going on in Ukraine is bad, and it is, it's horrible, but multiply that times a hundred or a thousand. You think gas is high now at $4 a gallon? You won't even be able to get it. And then Jesus is going to return. You see, what ends the church age is Jesus in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 11 and follow. He comes in the air, according to 1 Thessalonians 4. He comes in the air for his people. And then there's a, this seven years, this last week of Daniel. And then at the end of that seven-year period, he comes to the earth with his saints. So if we come to, to the earth with him, that means that somewhere we had to go be with him. And that was the rapture. Now, I know there are people that don't believe in the rapture, and that's okay. I just happened to, to be convinced that that's the, oh, the best eschatological view. Even when you look at all of this, I'm not prescribing or trying to, to tell you what day this is going to happen. We don't even have to guess about the days that we saw the first 69 weeks. It's already happened. All we got to do is look at history. But what we don't know is when Jesus is going to come in the rapture for his people. That's why we need to be ready every day. And I want to encourage you, if you don't know Jesus Christ today, globalism is coming after you. You say, well, I'm too smart. I won't get that. Well, look how you've been fooled over the past two years. It's not a person in this room that hasn't fallen to the foolishness of all that's gone on in trying to destroy this nation over the past two years, year and a half. So what, are we, what can we do? What is, the, what is the fatal globalization in the Bible? Revelation chapter 13, verse 3 tells us that, um, and I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded and his deadly wound was healed and all the world marveled and followed the beast. You see, this beast is going to, is going to suffer a fatal blow in combat. And it's going to really show. And you know how it's going to show all over the earth? Right now, you can get on this thing. Oh, I don't want to take a picture. I punched something wrong there. <laughs> Shut that thing down. That's my girlfriend's picture there. We're going to be able to, you know, if you're still here, I don't plan to be here when it happens because I believe in the rapture of the church. But if you're still here and you still got one of these things, you're going to see it take place. It's going to be a miracle. The leader of this one world government, this one world religion, this one world control of all the money of the world, because there's been pandemics, there's been all types of evil, there's been wars and rumors of wars, people are going everywhere, one is going to rise up out of the sea of, of, of all populations of the world, one will rise up out of these ten conglomerated, uh, revived Roman Empire, one will rise up and he will have the answer for everything. And he will lead the, the people against, because he will put all the blame 
all the blame on the Jews and the nation of Israel. That's why we've got all this problem over there, because of all those Jews over there. And he will want to lead the whole world to come and destroy the, the nation of Israel. And when he does, he's wounded. And when he's wounded, miraculously, he is healed. And Revelation chapter 13 and verse 3 tells us. Then look at verses 5 through 8, what happens uh, from that. He says, and he was given a mouth. Listen to how this smooth-talking rascal. He was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. He's blaspheming God. You know why? Because he's going to proclaim himself to be God. And he was given authority to continue for how long? Say it. 42 months, three and a half years. Then he, accept, then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God. And it was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given to him over every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. Does that sound familiar? The false Christ trying to do what the real Christ is going to do? And all who dwell on the earth will worship him. They will worship this man whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So, hey, those who are saved, written in the uh, book of life, the Bible tells us the Lamb's book of life, we're not going to be here to worship him. We're going to be worshiping our Lord and Savior in heaven because we've been taken out of here. And those that are left here on this earth will worship him. And then we see the final globalization in the Bible. Zechariah chapter 14. What does this passage tell us? What is this, this final globalization? This is the good one. For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem, it says. The city shall be taken. The houses rifled. And the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north and half of it toward the south. Now that's a prophecy of Zechariah of the, the last part of the tribulation period right before the coming of Christ. And then look in verse, chapter 14, verse 9. <laughs> now this is shouting ground here, folks. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. Globalization for righteousness. 
And in that day, notice what Zechariah says, in that day, it shall be the Lord is one and his name is one. There'll, there'll be no more denominations. There'll be, there'll be no more false religions. There'll be no more false gods. The Lord is one. The whole world will know who the Lord is. Gosh, I wish I had time this morning to take you through Isaiah and through Zechariah and through Zephaniah and then through Daniel again and then look in Jeremiah and look in all those places where the Bible tells us what this wonderful thing called the millennial reign of Christ is going to be like and what it means of the new heaven and the new earth and us in our glorified bodies and forever and forever and forever being with God. The Lord is one. And then his name is one. That at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord. Now that actually is a, is a verse that's talking to really all those who rejected Christ. That they will have to, at the great white throne judgment, they will have to say, God you were right, and I'm an idiot, and I was wrong. I deserve. You know what? When someone is cast into outer darkness there at the great white throne judgment, not a single one whose name is not in the Lamb's book of life will be able to bring any type of charge against the Lord. They will say that he was faithful. He was true. And I know there are all kinds of different theologies out there about this, that, and the other and who's going to be saved and who's not going to be saved. I'll tell you who's going to be saved and that's those who trust Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior because that's what the Bible says. How that's going to happen, I don't know how. That It's a miracle. It is a sovereign act of God through the power of the work of the Holy Spirit in the dead spirit of a dead man walking, reviving and bringing that dead spirit to life, giving that dead spirit faith to believe, and then believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And whosoever surely meaneth me. You remember that great hymn? And I don't care what your theology is or where you get it from. Look at what the Bible says. There is always a balance between the sovereignty of God and the moral responsibility of man that somehow those two things will never fit together, but they're both absolute truths that God gives us that somehow he gives us the, the ability to believe. And that does not destroy his sovereignty. So the final globalization in the Bible is the one we're looking for, not the one that we're in now, but with the one that we're in now, it's headed to the one that we're looking for. So I would encourage you today, and here's what we need to do. What's our response? We need to be aware. 
of this globalization. John 8, 32 says, And you shall know the truth, the truth shall what? Make you free. Listen, don't listen to the Communist News Network. That's CNN if you don't know what that is. They don't have a clue. If you watch that station, you're going to be lied to like a dog. In fact, if you watch just about any station, you're going to be lied to. Look at the Bible. Look at the Word of God. Come, come and hear God's men preach God's Word from the truth of God's Word. That's where you'll get the message you need to hear. Be aware. Number two, don't despair. 2 Timothy 1, 7 says, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And then, number three, you best get prepared. We need to be aware, don't despair, but you better get prepared. How do you get prepared? Worship Jesus. Matthew chapter 22 tells us, that we should worship him. John 4 tells us we should worship him. What else should we do? We should worship Jesus, not only that, but we should work for Jesus. We'll work till Jesus comes. We'll keep preaching the gospel. We'll keep sharing the gospel. We'll keep living the gospel everywhere that we go, whether it's in recreation, whether, whether it's at our work, wherever it is. Stand up. Stand up for Jesus, you soldiers of the cross. Lift high his royal banner. It must not suffer loss. From victory unto victory, his army shall he lead till every foe is vanquished. And say it with me. And Christ is Lord indeed. Stand up for Jesus. And number three, wait for Jesus. You say, Brother Ken, you just told me to be busy. Now you're telling me to sit down and wait. No, I'm not. You know, when, when I was a kid growing up, when we heard somebody, here, here was a saying that would come out. Oh, so-and-so was on his deathbed. And this was before hospice, and this was before hospitals. I mean, there were some hospitals where they were all in big cities. You had the little country doctors that came around, did house calls. When we'd hear that somebody was on their deathbed, and throughout the whole community, people would start coming. They'd bring food. They'd sit with the family. And then the word would go out. Oh, so-and-so has died. And then they would have what they would call a wake. They don't have many of those anymore. In fact, they don't ever hear, hear of it happen. But a wake was when people would come and they would sit around and they would be with the family and they would worship and they would just praise God, they would bring food, they would support the family, it'd be a time of celebration of another saint of God gone to heaven. But you know what? When they were, when they were there and the whole word would go, off that, go out that so-and-so was on his deathbed, there was an anticipation throughout the community. People went about their business, they worked they worked even harder by taking stuff over to the family, making sure they were taken care of, watching after the widow, 
if it was a widow or the widower, whatever it was, or the children, they were, they were busy while they were waiting for the ultimate thing to happen. Folks, that's what I mean by waiting. Waiting with anticipation. This could be the last sermon I ever preach. I've told you a bunch of times I want to die preaching. Now, I know that may not be the best for you, but it sure would be glorious for me. This may be the last sermon you ever hear. Are you ready? It may not be just the last one I preach. It may be the last one you'll ever hear. It may be the last time you feel the, the Holy Spirit of God wooing you and, and pulling you and calling you and saying, Come to Jesus. Right now, the Spirit of God is speaking to someone's heart and saying, Come to Jesus. Listen to that big mouth, big eared preacher up there. He's telling you the truth. Come to Jesus. It's your only hope. Are you ready to come today? If you'll come to Jesus in repentance and in faith and the Spirit of God moving upon your heart is taking the Word of God today, He's impressing that upon your heart and He's calling out to you saying, Come to Jesus. It's time for you to come. I want you to stand with me. We're going to sing this last song. I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing. And here's my prayer. Would you bow with me? Lord, I thank you today that you're preparing us, not only preparing a place for us, but you're preparing us for that place. And right now, Lord, our world's in a mess as we see it. But you're not up in heaven wringing your hands wondering what's going to happen because you, you already know. And today, right now, here in Warren, Tennessee, in Warren Community Church, you're speaking to the heart of someone that needs Jesus today. And so, Lord, right now, I pray that as you're speaking to their heart through the power of your Spirit and the proclamation of your Word, that, Lord, you will woo that individual to, sal to repentance and salvation. And, Lord, if they would confess with their mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in their heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And if they will confess today, Lord, that you're Savior and that they need you and they're a sinner, and they will repent, turn from their sin, and turn to you, you say that he that comes to you, you will in no wise cast out. And so today, Lord, I pray they will come to you in faith and believe and receive you today as their Lord and Savior and publicly proclaim that today I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to Sunday Sermons. If you want to learn more about us, visit warrencommunitychurch.org.